The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled Songs for the Savior. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Well, again, welcome to Sacred City Church. This is Advent Sunday. It's the first Sunday in the season of Advent. If you don't know what that means, the word Advent was taken from the Latin word Adventus, which was translated from the Greek word in the Bible, perusia, which means the arrival. Okay, uh, many times uh, when we say, when we talk about the perusia of Christ, we're talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. So for Christians, this season of Advent is unique. It celebrates the coming of Christ from two different perspectives. The season offers us the opportunity to share with the kind of the ache and the angst and the deep longing of those in the Old Testament who were longing for the Messiah, longing for the one who would make everything right, longing for the promised Redeemer to come, who was waiting for this long-expected Jesus. But it also is unique to us, that we live in a unique period, that Christ has come. So we get to look back at that, but we also get to look forward, and we're in this waiting period ourselves, waiting for Christ to come back the second time. And so... The the Christian church has traditionally celebrated Advent the four Sundays um, before Christmas. And each week what we do is we take a look at a unique aspect or a unique piece of the work and life of Jesus Christ and how that work and how that aspect of his life should affect us if we believe in him, how it should affect us as believers. And traditionally, we light a new candle every single week. There's four can- or five candles, technically. There's three purple, one pink, and one white candle. The candles represent hope, love, joy, and peace. And then the white candle is the Christ candle. So the white candle, will be get- it'll be lit um, on Christmas Eve. And then that candle, you'll see it on our cross. It'll burn all year long. We'll use it at our Good Friday service and our Easter service. And that one candle will burn all year long, but the four candles are unique to the season of Advent. We light one every single week. Now, I hope that you have an Advent wreath at home. It's a great way to celebrate Advent with your family, to talk about an aspect of Christ's coming um, each week. Um, they're easy to make. I posted a thing on the city this week that can help you um, celebrate Advent with your family, but um, that's on the city. You can check it out. You can find out some more information in the back if you want to do that. Um, and this year, we've decided to do things a little bit different. We wanted to celebrate Advent um, by taking a look at a traditional Christmas hymn that we all know, that we all sing, that anybody from Nat King Cole to Justin Bieber has had a cover of, right? And why would we want to do that? You know, especially Sacred City that we are, we preach expository, exegetical sermons. We go verse by verse through books of the Bible. Why would we want to take a moment and preach through or kind of talk about songs. Well, music is powerful. I think all of us know that. Uh, Music helps us memorize things. It can shape our emotions. It can influence our actions. I know you can hear a song, like you can hear a song and immediately, like you're in eighth grade again, right? You're in a dance, right? You with her? Whoa, whoa, sorry. Right? But you know it. Right? I hear a boys to men song, I'm immediately in eighth grade again. Right? Music takes us back. Music moves us. Music connects us to places in time. Therefore, Christians have always used music to help get the story of Jesus into our everyday lives. The book of Psalms is actually set to music. And the Israelites would sing it to memorize it. They would learn Parents would teach their children how to pray through singing the Psalms, right? Many of us, I mean, that's one great, that's probably the best way to learn to pray is by going back to the Psalms and reading the Psalms and hearing the Psalms and learning the songs and memorizing the Psalms. St. Augustine, the fifth century bishop of North Africa, is attributed as saying, those who sing, pray twice. Those who sing, Pray twice. And he said, with that, he says, singing belongs to the one who loves. Right? That when you fall in love, you sing. Right? There's something about love that causes us to sing. And 
Augustine's words remind us that our hymns are actually prayers. When we sing, we're praying. When we read the Psalms, we're praying. And when we sing them, when we take the Psalms, we put them to song, we actually sing them, we're actually adding something to them. We're adding this language of love. We're we're not just singing something we theologically know, but our hearts are being engaged by them. So singing does something special to even the written word. Singing kind of brings it to life, puts a heartbeat behind it. So when we sing, Augustine would say, we're praying twice. It's important, the songs that we're singing and the words that we're singing and the emotions that we're feeling while we're singing. They're all important. And then, of course, God himself in the scriptures commands us to sing. Fifteen times in the Old Testament, God says, sing to the Lord. In addition to that, the Bible instructs us to come into God's presence with singing, to make melody to the Lord and enter God's courts in song. There are 242, according to my Logos Bible software, 242 exhortations in the Old Testament alone to sing to God. Add to that the 12 New Testament citations, and you get a pretty good picture that singing is really important to God, right? Singing is important to God. In fact, the book of Revelation portrays heaven as continually filled with the songs of the saints and angels to which right now, as we, when we sing, our own voices are added, in essence, when we are praying twice. We sing because singing is what the people of God do in God's presence. So that's why we want to take the next four weeks and kind of break apart a song that, we're, that we sing here often. Um, and this week we're going to be taking a look at one of the most famous of all, and that is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We sang it this morning, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Now that song is pretty cool. It was written in Latin in the 8th century after the death of Jesus. Okay, But it wasn't put to music and written down in its current English form until around 1881. It's what's known as an antiphon. Okay, What's an antiphon? An antiphon... Think, here's the best way to do it. Think Gregorian chant, okay? An antiphon is kind of like a call and response. Now, I'm not going to do this, but the choir would sing and the church would respond. Or you could have dueling choirs. That'd be kind of cool, right? You have dueling choirs. They sing one part, they sing the other part. And again, it's memorization. And oftentimes, we even did this the first year we celebrated Advent at Sacred City. When they sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, they would sing, the first week of Advent, they would sing one uh, one verse, O come, let's say, King of David, and then they would sing the rest of it, or they would sing whatever the other part of the song is. I'm not a music guy. The part that you repeat, rejoice, rejoice, O Emmanuel. And then the next week, they would sing two verses, and then the chorus, right? And the next week, they'd sing three verses, and then the chorus. And it's hilarious. We were looking up, like, people love this song, okay? They've loved this song since the 8th century, so much so that I think we found 15 verses to this song. 15 different verses. They just, we love this song so much, let's just keep adding to it, right? So we could have just sang one song today and just, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and just kept adding verses to it. But we decided, let's go back to the original, the earliest uh, one that we have written down, and it's got five. And that's what we sang today. It's got five different verses. <clears throat> and in this song, uh, it's based on, the, you saw the scripture reading, it's based on two different texts. Um, Isaiah seven fourteen, where it's written, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel, if you haven't picked up from our liturgy, the word Emmanuel means God with us. Now, in Isaiah, which was about six to seven hundred years before the birth of Jesus, this prophecy was most likely interpreted as meaning that God would come alongside some man and he would rescue Israel, that he would redeem Israel. He would deliver them from their foes. Now, if you've been with us through Jonah, okay, um, Jonah prophesied about 20 to 30 years before Isaiah, okay? So remember Assyria, remember this big threat of Assyria and Nineveh that, that Jonah was kind of afraid of? Well, 20 to 30 years later, at the time of Isaiah, It's happened. What they had feared had happened. Assyria had came in and sacked Israel and taken Israel off into captivity. And at this time, what had happened was 
um, Israel, who was one people. There were 12 tribes. Remember the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, at this time, they had been divided. And there was the northern tribe and the southern tribe, 10 tribes of Israel and two tribes of Judah. And when Israel got sacked by Assyria and got pulled off into captivity, listen, this is crazy. These 10 tribes of Israel disappeared from the face of the map, never to return again. Okay, gone. Completely assimilated into other nations. But, but this prophecy through Isaiah says, but there's going to come a man, he's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us, and, he, and he's going to redeem, and he's going to ransom. And if you remember, if you've got maybe a good memory from a couple years ago when we studied through the book of Genesis, you'll remember that the promised redeemer, the promised rescuer was going to come through the tribe of Judah. Right? And that's one of the two, that's the, one of the two tribes left. So there's this promise that though your foes are about to, uh, they've just ransacked you and, and Judah's kind of shaking in their boots at the same time thinking, okay, we're next. Assyria's going to get us. They've already got the 10 tribes of Israel. Now they're going to come and crush us. Isaiah says there's going to come somebody that's going to rescue you, that's going to redeem you. And more than likely, well, actually, the way it was interpreted by the Jewish scholars was, okay, we're expecting another David. We're expecting another Moses. We're expecting another Abraham that God was going to come alongside and he's going to rally us around this great leader and he's going to deliver us from our foes. But that's not really what happened. Then in the book of Matthew, let's just say 700, roughly 700 years later, Matthew writes that an angel visits this young teenager named Mary. Many scholars say she's probably 14 years old. She's a virgin. She's betrothed to a man, right? She's engaged, and an engagement isn't like today where you can just kind of break it off, but engagement is, is the only way to break off an engagement is to divorce her or divorce someone. So just this picture, right? 14-year-old girl engaged to this man. He's never, they've never had sex. They've never slept together, and then she winds up pregnant, right? We've got a problem here, right? Joseph's not too happy about this. And he says, all right, you know what? Being a just man, a good man, he could have had her stoned under the law in that day. But instead, he's going to divorce her quietly. He's going to let her go away quietly. But an angel shows up to Joseph, and he says, nope. The Holy Spirit, God himself, has came and overshadowed Mary and filled her womb with the son. And this son, his name you've got to name him Jesus, for he'll save his people from their sins. That's what Jesus means. And you're going and, to, and he quotes Isaiah 7:14. Behold, Emmanuel, God with us. So Matthew kind of, this is nuts here. Matthew really takes 700 years of Jew, Jewish interpretation and flips it upside down on that Isaiah verse. All of these Jewish historians had said, this man is coming or this man that's going to that's gonna take the nation you know, up together and we're going to rally, we're going to fight, we're going to be a new nation again and God will be with this person. Matthew says, nope, what's actually happened is God has become man in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, this little baby is Emmanuel, God with us. In other words, Jesus is the son of God. Now, that's a big statement. And as we see Jesus grow up, he confirms that identity by living a sinless life, by performing many miracles, by healing people, and of course, his own resurrection from the dead. But I want you to think about that for a moment. Jesus, or Matthew says, Jesus is God. Matthew. Now, what does that mean? He's Emmanuel, God with us. Coming from the mouth, Someone who's Jewish, right? Someone who has a monotheistic religion. Strictly monotheistic. Now, of all the religions in the world, Jews would never believe this. Jews would never say this. There is one God that's beating your head right away. Like There is one God. Now, many other, almost all the other nations of the world, all the other religions of the world are okay with polytheism. Okay with multiple gods. All right, Jesus can be God, and this guy can be God, and that guy can be God, and we can all be gods. But not in the Jewish faith. There's one God, 
him and him alone. The Jewish faith is strictly monotheistic. God is one and God is holy. He is, what does that mean? He's completely distinct. He's unique from his creation. He's not like man. He's something other. God is holy and people are unholy. Yet Jesus Christ, by his life, by his claims, and by his resurrection, listen to this, convinced his closest followers who were Jewish that he was not just a prophet. He wasn't just a guy that came to this earth to tell you how to live so that God would love you. He wasn't a guy who just, Jesus wasn't just a guy who came and kind of pointed his way to God and said, okay, this is how you find God. Live a good life. Follow these rules. Go to this gathering. Jesus wasn't some kind of sage that came to tell people how to find God. Jesus was actually God coming to find us. Every other religion differs from Christianity here. Every other religion was founded by someone who was a prophet or a wise man or a teacher who came to tell us how to find God. Here's the steps to enlightenment. Here's what you have to do to connect with the divine. Here's what you have to do to get God's attention. Here's what you have to do to be one with the universe. Here's what you have to do to find eternal life. Here's what you have to do to get God to notice you. Every other religion is like that. Only in Christianity does God do the opposite and God come down to find us. See, that's our claim. That's the claim of Christian. Jesus Christ, our founder, came to this earth to find you. Now, what does that mean? He's God come to find us. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? I'm going to say this. It means that you have to deal with Jesus. I'm going to just throw that out there. Every human being has to deal with Jesus. And in some places, the Bible says you can do it now or you can do it later, but every knee will bow before Jesus. Now, why? Why does it say just really strict and narrow things like that. Listen, we must study him. We must listen to him. We must respond to his teaching. We cannot say, I want you to hear this, we cannot say to God, I don't know you. I need more information about you. I don't know you. You never showed up to me personally. Never had an experience. I don't know you. We can't say that without investigating the real Jesus Christ first. See, we can't say, I don't like you, God. I don't want to deal with you. I, I kind of get, get mad at you. I'm frustrated with you. I don't really know if you're out there. We can't, we can't intellectually say that without really dealing and looking at Jesus because Jesus himself says, I am God. And Matthew says, he is Emmanuel, God with us. So we've got to deal with this claim that Jesus is God and he came into our neighborhood, right? He moved into our world. He's here to show us exactly what God looks like. And most of the people that I meet when I'm sharing my faith and I'm hanging out at coffee shops and I'm hanging out at pubs and I'm sharing my faith with people, most of the people that I meet who've rejected Christianity have not rejected Jesus. And I'm not talking about this lame thing, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church. That's just, I think it's smokescreen. I'm talking about people reject Jesus because of a caricature that they have of him in their mind. Not the real Jesus. They, they think he's super, you know, he just kind of accepts everybody or they think he's just really kind of blasé. He's not really a big deal. They don't really understand who he is. They haven't studied what he said. They didn't study how he lived. They don't know who he is and what he's done. They don't get the story. Most people who reject Christianity aren't even rejecting Christianity. They're rejecting some fake watered-down version that they get from Ned Flanders that lives next door. Ned Flanders, if you don't know who that is, you could Google that. So, if, G, here's my, if Jesus is God and he came to us, God comes to us, then if we want to answer the deepest longings of our soul, right? What am I here for? What's this world all about? Why do I struggle? Why do I suffer? What's the answer to life, to the big questions in, of, of life? Then we've got to come face to face with Jesus. If he's God, 
the source of all good things, then we've got to come face to face with him and ask him these questions. And what we see over and over and over and over again in the Bible is anyone, here we go, anyone who met Jesus had a serious reaction. Everyone who met Jesus had a serious reaction. No one came to Jesus and said, oh, cool, that was neat. I feel a little better about my life now. Thanks for that. I needed a little pick-me-up. I appreciate that, Jesus. On with their life. No. When people met Jesus, it was the defining moment of their life. It was the tipping point for them. They either left everything and followed him and bowed in worship and said, Jesus, you're God. You deserve all of my life. You deserve everything. I'll leave everything and follow you. They either did that or they cursed him as an enemy and turned and ran from him. They loved him and worshiped him or they hated his guts. That's what it means to meet the real Jesus because he's God. He demands that type of response, right? You get that? He's God. He demands that type of response. Love him or worship him or hate him and curse him. Why would anybody want to hate him and curse him? Because all of us want to be our own God. Nobody wants anybody to tell them what to do or what to believe, right? That's why we curse him. When Jesus stands up and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, what he's saying is, there's no other way. But in our city, and the people that I talk with day in and day out, we have thousands of people who say they believe that Jesus is God. If you ask them at the mall on a little survey, they're going to check it off. Yes, Jesus was God. Check. They say they know him, and yet they've had no response to him. They've had no response. He hasn't changed their life at all. Now, how is that? How could you say you know him, say you believe he's God, but yet your life remains the same as it was before? Now, I think there's two reasons. One, they haven't met Jesus. That's just a stark reality. That's the first truth. They haven't met the real Jesus. Maybe they have, like I said, that little idea of who Jesus is. You know, this kind of, I don't, there's just so many caricatures of Jesus. I, I don't even want to name them because there's so many um, you know, fake ones out there. So that's one. They either have, they just haven't met the real Jesus, so then their life hasn't been changed. Or two, as, as Tim Keller would say, they just don't have any intellectual integrity. They just, what does that mean? They just don't live what they believe. They just don't, their, their thinking doesn't affect that the way that they live. That's the only way that you can say you know God and God not radically change your life. One, you've not met Jesus Christ, the real Jesus Christ. Or two, you don't have intellectual integrity. No one meets God and then shrugs their shoulders and goes, oh, okay, and goes on with life as usual. Every place you look in the Bible where someone meets Jesus, it's the defining moment of their life. You have to have a response. You can love him and give your life to him or you can hate him and shout crucify him. But if he really is God, you've got to respond in some life-altering way. Most of our, many of our, this caricature of Jesus that we have in our mind, that Jesus would never get crucified. We have to remember, the real Jesus was hung on a Roman cross and crucified because he said he was God. People had that kind of reaction to him, enough to hate him. Many people did. Do people have that kind of reaction to, to, to the Jesus that we preach, to the Jesus we proclaim? We, they should. Now, okay, so one, point one, Jesus is God. So what does that mean for us? That means if you meet Jesus, if you come and you really study Jesus and you really learn of Jesus, your life is going to change one way or the other. Right? You're either going to push away and say, that's too much. I don't want it. I don't want somebody like that. Or you're going to embrace him as God and say, thank you for coming into my life. Thank you for showing up to me. Thank you for 
showing me what God is like and answering all the big questions of my life. So it demands a response. I'm going to ask you this morning, have you responded to the real God of Jesus Christ? Have you responded to him? Or are you kind of shrugging your shoulders? If you're shrugging your shoulders, you haven't met him. And if you, or you just, you don't have any intellectual integrity. You're not living what you, re, what you say you believe. Okay? Secondly, first off, Jesus is God. Secondly, Jesus as Emmanuel means that Jesus isn't just God. This is, this, this right here is just like, no fiction author has ever written something more fantastical than this. Jesus is God, and yet Jesus becomes us. Okay, I'm going to have three points today. Jesus is God, Jesus is us, and Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is God, I've already talked about. Jesus is us. What does that mean? Emmanuel means God with us. He's literally God, and he's literally us. Theologians call this the incarnation, okay? God is spirit, yet in Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus is God, and then Jesus becomes man. Now, there's not like some kind of mixture there. He's like 50-50. Jesus is 100% God. And then he adds to his divinity, humanity. So Jesus is simultaneously God, 100% all the way through, and simultaneously man, 100% through. Now, this is important because when you really get down to it and you start studying, and if you want to look up big words, you can study the hypostatic union. You can get into that. And what, what you're really studying is Jesus was not Clark Kent, Right? You shoot Clark Kent, doesn't matter what outfit he's wearing at the time, bing, it bounces off, right? Jesus was not like that. Jesus wasn't, you know, half the time one guy, half the, and he'd flip a switch, and now I'm divine. Now I'm human. Now I'm divine. Now I'm human. Back and forth. Jesus was 100% man. You shoot him, he dies. You crucify him, he dies. Jesus is fully, as we read in the profession of faith, fully divine. Total God, as the confession says, total God of total God. He's also fully human. Uh, J.I. Packer says, this is the most fantastic truth of all Christianity. See, we want to talk about the cross. We want to talk about the resurrection. J.I. Packer, one of the greatest theologians of our day, says, no, 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 no. The craziest thing about Christianity is that God became man. What does, now, there's other religions that say gods, the gods come down and walk among men, right? Men, right? But what does Thor do when he comes to earth, right? Thor is what? A god among men, right? Thor is powerful, Thor, everybody looks up to him. Thor, whatever, whatever Thor wants to do, Thor wants Thor can do, right? When the gods walk among men, they, they just run over men. They, they demand men to worship, and they kind of subjugate men most of the time, right? But what does Jesus Christ do? When he not just comes down to us and walk like a god among men, but he actually becomes man. See, Jesus comes in the womb a teenage girl. Jesus comes as a helpless baby. He comes helplessly to a young woman in a small town in the middle of a desert. Think about that, guys. God comes and stays in the middle of nowhere. He he lives his life in the shadows. 30 years in obscurity. He's content I want to, he's content with being unknown. Many of us can't even go one day without posting on Facebook because we have a fear of being unknown. They got to know what I'm wearing. They got to know what I'm eating. 
it's kind of funny, but I want you to hear this. This is something deep down in our soul that's going wrong. Afraid to be alone. Afraid to be quiet. Afraid to be introspective. Afraid to meditate and think deeply. Any moment I have, whether it's on the bus, whether it's in the car, whether it's at the waiting room, whether it's in line, whether it's before a movie, during a movie, I have to be on my phone. I have to be connected. I have to be letting people know what I'm doing and finding out what they're doing. And Jesus lives his life. 30 years, God comes to earth and only a few people know it. For 30 years, he lives his life. Jesus was content with being unknown. He was content growing up in a broken family with a stepdad. He was content to worship God for 30 years in an ordinary way. Can you imagine the type of worship services they could have had if God was there back in the day? Like all the craziness going on in churches today, people flying in on zip lines and stuff blowing up on stage and every single week's got to be bigger and badder than the week before. Can you imagine what you could have pulled off if God was there? Literally, every week, Jesus, do something cool. Nobody bring bread, nobody bring bread, nobody bring wine. Jesus is going to make it, right? He could have been a sideshow. But he doesn't, he doesn't, he isn't. He's ordinary. I just want to, I almost want to just stop on that point right there. So many of us are fighting and screaming and kicking and taking more and more classes trying to get more and more and more education because we're not content. We can't be average. We can't be ordinary. We've got to be better than everybody else. We've got to be seen. We've got to be noticed. And the Son of God, when He comes, He doesn't come with all this fanfare. He comes unexpected. He comes hidden. He almost sneaks his way into his creation. Then Jesus, see, but then he, he, for three short years, he's 30, about 30 to 33-ish, whatever, somewhere around there, about three short years, Jesus takes his ministry public. He goes public with it, right? He's like hidden for 30 years, and now for three years, he goes public. And he goes, right, he's healing people, he's preaching the word of God, he's blowing people's minds, he's raising the dead, and then what happens? He gets crucified, killed after three short years of ministry. Dies a brutal death on a Roman cross. Listen, what does this mean? God is, or Jesus is God and Jesus is us. He's humanity, he's human. Has the world ever seen such humility? Has the world ever seen such love, such selflessness? God comes to earth as a man and gets himself killed. And why? Why does Jesus become a man? Why does God come this way? This is what Hebrews says. Listen. It says, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. Who are his brothers? Us. Brothers and sisters. Jesus had to be made like his brothers. That's why he came to human. Now listen. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. When you pray, when you cry out to a God, how could a God understand you who's never felt pain? How could a God understand your loss when he's never felt loss? In this church, we had, we've had two, uh, two of our members' fathers pass away this week. Right? When you're, pr- when you're crying out to a God and you're saying, I'm lost, I'm longing, I'm missing, I'm hurt, how could a God resonate with you? But Jesus Christ has felt the pain and God the Father has felt the pain of that searing loss. God the Father has had his own son crushed, his own son lost, his own son separated from him. That the Christian God has felt the pain that Jesus Christ as God and as human has resonated with us, has hurt like us, has felt the weight of temptation like us. He sympathizes with us in our weakness. Jesus is our high priest, Hebrew says. And listen, he says, 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize us with us with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way, just as we are. Every temptation that we face, Jesus faced. Every temptation. The temptation to plaster our name. The temptation to, to be great in the eyes of men. The temptation to not, go to not go the way to the cross, but take an easy way out. Jesus faced all those temptations. And yet he never sinned. Jesus was without sin. And he says this, Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Now, I don't usually do this, but there was this, in, uh, Knowing God is a great book by J.I. Packer. And he's got this whole section on the incarnation. And I just want to read it to you. Like, there's a temptation for a preacher to, to read this and go, yes, and I'm just going to change a few words and act like it's mine. Right? I didn't want to do that. I, I, just, I wanted to just read this quote to you. So I'm, I'm going to read it, and I might read it kind of slow. <clears throat> this is what Packer says. We see now what it means for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor. That God, when he left heaven, he left the riches of heaven there and he came and became poor. It meant laying aside, listen, a glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death, a death that involved such agony, spiritual, even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it in the garden. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely human beings, that they, through his poverty, might become rich. That doesn't mean monetarily spiritually rich. The Christmas message, here it is, listen. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It's the most powerful message the world has ever heard or will ever hear. We talk glibly of the Christmas spirit, rarely meaning more by this man than that, that rarely meaning more by this than sentimental oh man, this is a great word jollity on a family basis. But what we have said makes it clear that the phrase Christmas spirit should in fact carry a tremendous weight of meaning. It ought to mean the reproducing, and here it is, in human lives of the temper of him who for our sakes became poor at the first Christmas. And the Christmas spirit itself ought to be the mark of every Christian all year long. What's he saying? That, that's how Jesus being us should change us. The rich, the richest in the world becoming poor. The most accepted becoming an outcast the most celebrated and worshipped and happy coming to this earth to live in isolation, to be ridiculed, to be mocked. That's the Christmas spirit. If you think about what that means, what Jesus did for us in becoming us, what does that mean for us? It means you, you can't just hang out with people like you. Do you hear that? You can't just buy gifts for those you look up to and want to get in their good graces, people that you want to impress. You've got, listen, if you understand the incarnation, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God of God himself, the second member of the Trinity, coming down to become us, you see a rich God becoming poor for us. So if you get that, if you study that and believe that, then it's going to push you out towards the poor. It's going to fill your heart with a deep love for the poor, for the outcast, for those who are different from you, for those who in society you would look down on. I 
the Christmas time, when we see the Christmas spirit, it means people that see this, what Jesus has done, becoming man, they give sacrificially because he's a God who gave sacrificially. The only reason we're saved, the only reason we're in him, the only reason we've been adopted and all given all the riches of heaven's glory is because God became poor for our sake. So that spirit, understanding that, changes us to reproduce that, to live like that. We give past what's comfortable. Now, moving on. Jesus is God, point one. Jesus is us, point two. And lastly, Jesus is our salvation. Now, I really hesitated saying Jesus is our salvation and using that word because I think so many of us, when I use that word, saved or salvation, most of us think that I'm referring to eternal life. When I say Jesus is our salvation, what most of us think automatically in our head is, oh, when I die, I'll go to heaven. And that, I'm going to tell you, that's, a, that's like a, a sliver. That's a good part of salvation. It is, indeed. But it's a sliver of salvation. It's not all-inclusive of the biblical term of salvation. So I really hesitated to use the word salvation, but since it's a biblical word, I want to use it, hopefully redefine it, give us some good biblical parameters of what salvation is. In the Bible... Salvation is more than just going to heaven when we die, okay? Salvation is being saved. His name is Jesus. He will save us from our sins. He will save his people from his sin, their sins, right? That's what Matthew says. Salvation is being saved from our sins. Now, what does that mean? Uh, you could talk about being saved from the penalty of sin, from the presence of sin, from the power of sin. Sin has affected us in many different ways. What does that mean? We're saved from sin's consequences, saved from the wrath of God, saved from the despair of a life lived for my own glory. And any time I, I push away from God, my life actually diminishes. I'm living for lesser things. We're saved from misery. We're saved from meaninglessness. Salvation in its most full interpretation means being saved from all of the consequences of the fall of man, when man rebelled from God. It means to be made right with God, to be made right with man, and to be made right with his creation. Can I say this? Salvation is what everyone wants. Salvation is what every human being wants. Everyone longs to be made right. And here's the problem. The only place to find salvation, to be made right with God and that inner longing that we have, that, as you could, some people have said, that hole in the soul that is never filled by, by no matter how much money, no matter how much sex, no matter how many good things that we can buy, that hole in our soul that can only be filled by Christ, that can only be found in salvation. But that's not it. That disconnect between humans. How do we get over our anger? How do we get through our bitterness? How do we forgive people who have hurt us? How do we stay in a marriage that's really difficult? How do, you know, it's been said that, that you can choose your friends, but you can't, choose, you can't choose your family and you can't choose your neighbors, right? And it's hard to love our neighbors and it's hard to love our family. Remember, many of you have been reminded of that this weekend as people came back for Thanksgiving. And you've been reminded why, yeah, I really don't like that person, Right? What's the answer? Salvation is the answer. And then the creation. Why do things go wrong? Why do things break? Why do people die? Why do, do, do storms and tornadoes and horrible things happen in the world? We long to be made right with creation. The Bible says the only way to be made right with God, with our mankind, and with creation is through salvation. And the only way salvation comes is through Jesus Christ. Now, is that narrow? Is that narrow-mindedness? Maybe. But just, I want you to listen to the logic here. Only man fell from grace. Mankind was the one who rebelled. God didn't. God has never sinned. God has never done right. He's the only one who's good, right, and perfect. So listen, here's the logic. Mankind fell, so it must be mankind 
who pays the price for those sins, right? He did the crime. He does the time, right? Man does the crime. Man does the time. God has never sinned. God cannot do the time. God cannot pay the price for mankind's sin. Well, why not? Because God is pure. God is holy. God is righteous. What does that have to do with anything? Follow the logic here. If a judge is holy and righteous and pure and always does what is right, and a guilty person comes in front of them, and that judge says, not guilty. That judge has just sinned against his own holiness, against his own righteousness. He's broken his own law. He's just become unrighteous. People in the courtroom who were offended by this person, maybe they were stolen from, maybe they were abused, maybe, they were, maybe somebody was a victim of, of some kind of heinous crime, and they see this judge go not guilty to this person, the, the courtroom is going to erupt and say, this judge is not right, this judge is not pure, he's not true, he's not good. See, man has done the crime, so man must do the time. God himself cannot pay the price for sin because if he does, he's unrighteous. He's no longer good. Do you see the conundrum we have here? Do you see the problem? But we have, the problem goes deeper still because in this analogy, every single human being has sinned. Every single human being has fallen short. So that means when I stand before God, my judge, and he judges me, I can't pay the price for anybody else because I'm guilty myself. I can't pay the price for my, even my kids, right? I can't pay the price for my wife. I get up there and God says, guilty. And I go, whoa, whoa let me be guilty for my wife. Let me take her place. And he's like, you, you, you're taking your own place. You're guilty for you. You can't pay the price for anybody else. You've committed high treason. You've rebelled against the God who created you. You've sinned and fallen short. So do you see this problem we have here? Mankind has done the crime, so they must do the time, but mankind can't redeem other people. Mankind can't redeem the world. Mankind can't take the place of anybody else because they're guilty themselves, and God himself can't acquit the guilty without himself being maligned, without himself being deemed unrighteous and no longer a good and holy and righteous judge. Do you see this problem? Listen, this is the beauty. I don't want to say the beauty and the beautiful logic. I love those putting those two words together. Beautiful logic of the incarnation. This is Emmanuel, God with us. See, Jesus came as God and became man, fully God and fully man. Jesus never sinned and therefore never deserved any punishment in himself. And his father, he didn't get original sin passed down from his father because his father was God. So Jesus was born sinless and Jesus remained sinless and Jesus became a man. So Jesus is the only one. He's the only one that can take our place and become our salvation without God being unjust. He's both God and man. Jesus, the God-man, takes our place and becomes our salvation. I have this, is, do you guys have the slide? You have the slide, I got, throw that slide up here. I wanted to put it up here because it's got some big words and it's old, all right? This is John Howe, it's a Puritan writer. He says this, the wrong that man had done to the divine majesty, that's to God and his glory, should be expiated. What does that mean? Taken away to be expiated by none but man. Man done the crime, man must do the time. And it could be by none but God. Nobody can expiate that sin because we're all des- we, all deserve our own- we all deserve the wrath of God. Nobody can pay the price for another person's sin because we're all des- we all deserve hell and judgment. But God could. But then the wonderful conjunction of both in the one Emmanuel. Jesus is man, so he can take our place. And he's God, so he can pay the price for everyone's sin. When you put 
your faith in Jesus Christ, he saves you. He saves you from all your past sins. He saves you from your present sins. He saves you from your future sins. He saves you from the consequences of those sins, the repercussions of those sins. Jesus becomes to us in our salvation everything we're looking for in life. Our meaning, our hope, our purpose, our forgiveness, our love, our courage, our humility. He is our salvation. But this is where we need to remember that Advent doesn't just point back to Jesus being born as a little baby. It points to his second coming as well. See, right now, Jesus Christ is standing at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all creation, and he's preparing to come back to this earth a second time. Once the Father's plan is finished and all of God's people have heard the gospel and been saved from their sins, Jesus will come again, this time in power, in judgment, and in might. See, this is, what, this is just the strange season that we're living in right now. Jesus is our salvation. This is what I want to say. When I say Jesus is our salvation and he's everything you're looking for in life, he's the answer to all your questions, he's the answer to all your problems, what I don't want you to hear is this kind of Americanized version of that, that when you believe in Jesus Christ, everything's going to be peaches from now on. Everything's good, everything's golden, every business deal is going to go through, every relationship's going to be smooth sailing, every kid's going to be obedient, right? That's not what I'm saying. And Advent, Advent speaks into this season right now. For those of you who are longing, for those of you who are hurting, for those of you who are sick in body, for those of you with broken families, for those of you with death in the family, for those of you who look and say things are not the way they should be, we look to the second coming of Christ and say, but it's on its way. Salvation in its fullest form has been accomplished on the cross, but it's not been brought to completion yet, and it will be brought to completion when Christ comes the second time and brings his new creation and his kingdom to this earth, and there is no more death, there is no more tears, there is no more longing. So sometimes people go, well, isn't, isn't the Christmas spirit just being happy? And Packer says, jollity, right? Not necessarily. The Christmas spirit is also longing, recognizing that the next iPad won't make you happy. There's something in us that will never be happy on this earth until Christ our Savior comes again. Your marriage won't make you happy. There's something we're all longing for that we'll never, that's, we're never going to get on this earth until Christ comes and his kingdom reigns. And right now, we're sitting in that time. We're sitting in that time. We should be the people that are most aware that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. People die. Relationships break down. Kids rebel. The world is crazy. And what do we say? Come, oh come, Emmanuel. Do we have that? Do we have that, do we have that longing in our heart? Or do we just try to live our life without that longing? Are we trying to push away from that? If we could put up the, the lyrics of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I feel like so much of our life is trying to push away from longing, push away from the, the hopeful anticipation, expectation we have that we need a Redeemer to come and fix everything. We're just like, the, we're just like Israel. The Israel of old who's waiting for their Messiah. We're just like Israel. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. That's the only thing that will help us. And ransom captive Israel. Israel's been brought off into captivity. We need ransom. That mourn, and, and Israel is also, you know, us as the church, the people of God, Romans 9 tells us. That mourns in lonely exile here. Listen, this is written after Jesus Christ has already come. Christians, there's a, there's a, there, it's okay to mourn at Christmas. 
It's okay to say, come, Lord Jesus. Things aren't the way they should be. But until the Son of God appears, when Christ comes again, everything will be made right. Next verse. O come, O come, great Lord of might, Adonai, Jesus, who comes to thy tribe, who, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, he in ancient times didst give the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Talking about the giving of the Ten Commandments when God came. Keep coming. Rejoice. This is... There's something complex about Christianity that I just love. People get so weirded out. We're longing. We're mourning. We're saying, come Lord Jesus. And then rejoicing. We're rejoicing. Why? Christ has come. We, we are sure, just as Jesus Christ walked this earth, we are sure he's coming again. We're not mourning as those who have no hope or grieving with, as those who don't have any hope. We're grieving with those who have hope in Christ. Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us, shall come to thee, O Israel. Keep going. O come, thou rod of Jesse. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny. Rod of Jesse. He was promised to the lineage of David, right? Jesse's David's father. Um, there's a prophecy. We read it earlier about a shoot or a, a sprout coming up from that uh, tree that had been cut off. And Jesus came through the line of Jesse and the line of David. Free thine own from Satan's tyranny, sin, sickness, the flesh, the devil, from the depths of hell, thy people say, thank God he redeems us from hell and gives us victory over the grave. Death is not the last word for Christians. Keep moving. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel, and Israel is not just a nation here. It's the people of God. Keep going. O come, thou sunrise, come and cheer. Our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadow put to flight. What do we need in our darkness? What do we need in our longing? We need Christ to come. We need Emmanuel, God with us. Is that it? Or we got one more? Two, one more? Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel. Shall come to thee, O Israel. One more? O come, thou key of David. Come and open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and clothe, close the path to misery. And indeed, we do have a great hope in heaven. Is that it? That's it. We're going to sing that one more time today. But what I want us to, to think about as we come to the Lord's table, Christmas isn't supposed to be happy clappy because our lives aren't happy clappy. The world we live in isn't happy clappy. What would you have thought if we came in and I dissected jingle bells for you? Right? Now, there's a sense where we all like that and we all kind of laugh at that. But that's not life. That's not real life. Right? All of us suffer. All of us bury people too soon. All of us get sick. All of us need salvation. And so we sing, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. This meal is special. Jesus instituted it with his disciples. Book of Corinthians tells us to do it. Paul tells us to do it as often as we come together. We don't do it in an unworthy manner that we remember. And every time we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That listen, we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, differently than those in Isaiah's time. Because we have this. We have something tangible in our hands that we can say, he came, he came, Emmanuel, he came. He came, God with us. Jesus is God, Jesus is man, Jesus is our salvation. And oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. I want us to eat like that this morning. I want us to eat thinking back to him, him coming the first time and everything that means for us. And I want you also to eat thinking forward to his second coming and what that will be like. When he comes again. Father, 
I thank you for dreaming up inside yourself, the Trinity, this amazing story of salvation, this incarnation, this hypostatic union, this God adding to himself humanity and coming poor and unnoticed and disregarded and mocked and beaten and crucified and yet rising from death in glory, conquering sin and death and hell and the grave and ruling and reigning for us. I thank you for accomplishing our salvation. Help us believe. Help us put our faith in Jesus, the God-man. Help us have that encounter where this is the defining moment of our life. This is the tipping point. And Father, as we suffer, as we struggle, let us look forward to the time where Christ will come, not as a baby, not obscure, comes in glory. He'll judge the living and the dead, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. O come, O come, Emmanuel. Let us eat, let us take your body and drink your blood. Let us remember that this morning. For those who are in here who have never believed in you, never met you, I pray that they would take you this morning. By faith, they put their trust and put their hope in you, and you would save them from their sin. And for those of us who are remembering again the gospel, remembering again the good news that God came down to save us, Father, that we'd eat hopeful, thankful today. Jesus powerful and precious name we pray. Amen.